0: Welcome to FIC Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence Fixed Income Credit Currency and commodities Strategists and Analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence FIC Research Team.
1: The sharp market dislocation in March of 2020, and to a lesser degree in the first quarter of this year, has left some invaluable lessons in the marketplace, the biggest being that liquidity will always be key in a credit market, especially a semi-opaque credit market such as municipals. As traditional banks may have pulled back when volatility rose sharply, electronic trading platforms have been able to fill the void and create pockets of liquidity when the markets needed them most. Electronic trading or algorithmic-driven buy-sell programs are not new to the market, They've been providing liquid markets for smaller trade sizes for years prior to the pandemic. However, the pandemic disruptions brought their prevalence to the larger stage and even boosted market share when volatility hit the extremes. On this week's Masters of the Universe, we are discussing the topic of algo trading and the electronification of the muni market. We're pleased to be joined by Marty Mannion and Matt Schrager from TD Securities, formerly Headlands. And as always, I'm joined by Amanda Albright from our Bloomberg News team. Welcome, everyone. I want to kick it off um, just very, very high level and just talk about first quarter of this year, right? I mean, look, no bones about it. Returns have been awful. And, you know, you guys are coming at the market from a totally different perspective than previous guests who, you know, have been on, on sort of the the sell side and and you know have an ax in the underwriting and also on the money management side. So, you know, from your perspective, how have you guys sort of viewed the first couple of months of this year?
0: Uh, so this is uh, this is Marty Mannion. Thanks, Eric and uh, Amanda for having us on. I'll I'll kind of kick it off, and I'm sure Matt will jump in here. Yeah. And I think one thing you'll hear from us uh, throughout the, the the podcast is uh, you know at the end of the day we're systematic traders, not credit traders. So we'll, we will be uh, certainly lighter than some of your other guests on uh, you know having grand insights into where we think credit's going or or, or fund flows or things of that nature. Um, but but. You know, broadly speaking, I think the um, you know, the first the, the first quarter uh, we've seen in our business just tremendous uh, volume and volatility uh, in the in the retail space of the muni market. So you know, record bid one at auction counts, uh, record transaction volumes over a sustained period of time. So very similar in some respects to March of 2020. Not quite as severe of a market move, but certainly maybe a longer or more extended period of time of really heightened um, uh, secondary trading. And, you know, for a business like ours, it tends to be an environment where we can really, I think, uh, you know, be most impactful in terms of providing liquidity uh, to, uh, you know, to retail investors and to clients and other um, uh, uh, traders in the marketplace.
1: Matt, do you want to add anything to that? No, I think that that's a a pretty good overview. Um,
2: You know, certainly uh, these past few months have been, uh, you've seen sustained outflows for the first time in in quite a while. I don't think we've seen inflows since something like January. Um, Marty mentioned it is in some senses similar to March of 2020, although it's worth noting the outflows there were much more severe than what we're seeing now. Um, but really, we view this as, you know, at the end of the day, we are in the business of providing liquidity. We sell liquidity to the market, right? And so it's important for us uh, during times of, of of stress and volatility like this to be able
1: to uh, continue to do that effectively. Let's expand upon that liquidity story, right? And, and I feel like it's a story that not a lot of people really know about sort of outside of, you know, a small microcosm of folks in the media industry. But, you know, if you could sort of give us, you know, the the story of like headlands and and what you guys had created there and and how you ended up at TD and keep in mind that we only have 45 minutes on the podcast. So let's not get too crazy, but let's, let's kind of like paint a picture for, for the folks who, who aren't familiar. So they have a little bit of familiarity as far as, you know, who we're talking to for the duration of the conversation.
0: Sure, sure. We'll we'll, we'll keep this uh, we'll keep this brief. But yeah. um, the 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 founders in Headlands uh, and I worked uh, previously at Citadel, where we had built out uh, electronic trading businesses and the equities and options markets. So also very retail centric, retail driven. Um, uh, the founders then went and founded a firm, uh, Headlands, which was focused on you know similar uh, low latency style uh, businesses. Uh, high portfolio turnover, um, uh, you know, very tight markets, centralized trading on exchanges. Um, so we often get asked the questions, you know, how did we end up in the in the mini market? This <laughs> seems <Yeah>. very far <laughs> afield from from what we had done historically. You all get and, asked
1: that question, Marty. <laughs> Everyone
0: in the muni. Everyone's in. The news. <laughs> you're, you're not unique. <laughs> yes, we now we, we now love the muni market. Um, but uh, you know the I think the the credit really belongs to the uh, to the to the founders of Headlands. They had a vision uh, that there was an opportunity in the muni market to really come in and provide liquidity in a more automated fashion. And and really one of the catalysts for that was uh, the belief of looming regulatory change. and, and things as simple as a, a best execution rule. Um, and, and some of the other changes uh, that came about uh, from whether it's FINRA, the SEC, MSRB, was really going to uh, help, uh, you know, foster greater adoption of the use of electronic platforms. So that was really the, the impetus. Uh, and uh, we felt like if we could get in early, we could provide again, we, we would be, provide us with certain advantages, but then we could also provide really meaningful liquidity to the market as it started this journey uh th- towards uh, you know greater automation um and that's really been you know really been the hallmark of what we've been trying to do over the last you know 8 to 9 years
1: it seems so simple right this you, you sort of wade into this really sort of unique and esoteric asset class and provide liquidity right at the end of the day it seems so simple but i mean are you surprised that like there really hasn't been meaningful competition um, that is a that
2: is a great question and the answer is, I mean, it is simple on the surface. Yeah, it is infinitely complicated when you dive into it. And look, that's true of of every market, uh, really. But there's reasons that muni's and fixed income in general have been slower to move towards automation. the The data sets look nothing like they do in traditional low latency asset classes. In yeah. in equities, you've got something like a few, a few thousand liquid uh symbols in the us yeah. immunies you guys all know this you've got millions millions of symbols and the canonical case for any of them is that you know if you look up a random bond in the muni market probably hasn't traded in three weeks and it's got no bid and no offer yeah so the challenge is how do you come up with the right price <laughs> yeah. for something like that right and i think that it's been um if you come at it with a traditional low latency lens and you try to apply the same techniques that work there you will be disappointed right yeah. now we very much we'd like to say we have low latency dna right we come from from that world and we very much try to apply and adapt high level techniques that work in that world but the but the truth is all the specifics have to look very very different yeah. and look i think that over time you will absolutely see more competition but it's a it's a journey and we we know that firsthand because it's taken us you know 9 years to to build this up
3: yeah. Matthew, can you, cause just the word simple, I was trying to wrap my head around this space and it's taken me a while and I'm still learning about it. Like what, what do y'all's day-to-days like look like with, you know, automated trading? Like, what does that look like on a day-to-day <laughs> basis?
2: That is a great question. And you know, you're still learning about it. We're all still learning about mm-hmm. it. Right. Um, I think that, much that, of the that,
1: market thinks you come in and just turn your machine on in the morning. Right? We all go home. Then, yeah. Licks off at the end of the day.
2: Yeah, uh, it is not like that at all, um, and Marty can can certainly jump in here. But um, you know, in a lot of ways, we are a, a mixture between a a traditional trading business and a software business and a quantitative research business, yeah. right? So you know, out on our our floor over here, we've got uh, a part of the part of the floor that I think would look somewhat familiar to most people in the market. Ah, uh, you know, with traders and and some distribution guys who do a, a fantastic, excellent job. Um, but then if you move a little bit, I like to say it's sort of organized that you move from the uh, the the least nerdy to the most nerdy. right. <laughs> and so you start getting more towards the quantitative researchers, the software developers, um, and in order to support you know a, a business that can uh, transact in the scales that we do in 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 these markets, uh, it's quite the engineering effort. It's quite the quantitative research effort. And that journey never ever stops. And so, you know, we've got our traders doing, you know, trader risk trading risk management activities, but we've also got our, our researchers, our mm-hmm. software developers every day working to improve the system, improve our pricing, expand other asset classes, which is something we could talk about at some point, yeah. uh, et cetera.
0: Yeah. And the only the only thing I'd really add there, Matt, Matt hit it. Uh, perfectly, is how tight the feedback loop is. So we really do think about uh, our team that are in, you know research roles, development roles, software engineering roles as being very integral to the whole front office process. So it mm-hmm. is part of the the same team. We've got the whole group sitting on the desk together. and so, you know, we can we can provide a, a a very tight loop on what we're seeing in the market, what kind of trading ideas do we have, ways that we can potentially improve modeling and have that have that feedback into the into the team that's developing the infrastructure and the in the models.
2: The catchphrase for us is no silos. We don't have back office, front office. Everybody's front office, right? Everybody is contributing directly to the success of the business.
1: You know, what's interesting is like there there's been so many attempts by people who have come from outside of munis to try and apply a business model to munis that in theory should work, right? And they, and they failed. And I almost like think about it, like all the, the pirate skeletons that the Goonies found on their way to like one Eye Willie's treasure, right? Just all these failures. But somehow like you guys have managed to sort of break through and be successful in, in applying this sort of approach that works cross asset. And, and I think that really speaks volumes about where our industry goes in the future in general, right? That this really has taken hold. But I think what's more important is that TD came along and was willing to write a very big check to back this up, right? So like talk to us a little bit about, and then, you know, not so much the financials of that deal, but just like sort of what that signals to you guys as far as commitment to this space and where you think growth will be going forward. Sure, I can, I'll take a, a
0: shot at this first. So okay. we, the, um... You know, we had uh, we had uh, built a successful business at Headlands. It was a fantastic place to start an operation like this. As Matt mentioned earlier, we have this kind of low latency DNA. Uh, it's a very very kind of forward-thinking shop. Um, uh, and we were able to, you know, scale the business to a certain degree uh, as, as part of Headlands. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's, what's interesting about the muni market, and this is true of other fixed income products as well, is they are much more uh, balance sheet intensive than some of the other markets or businesses that we've been a part of. And so I think we made the kind of collective decision that what we had built actually might be more valuable inside a larger financial institution where you can extend extend more capital or balance sheet to the business and really scale it. In addition, because these markets are so uh, fragmented and kind of OTC driven, you know, access to a large kind of institutional client base uh, is, is critically important. And that's another place where if you're part of a, a kind of larger financial institution like a TD, which has this kind of global footprint and, and a huge institutional base, uh, you can really scale the business in all sorts of interesting ways, both within munis, but then also in other, you know, adjacent, you know, products and asset classes. So we were, uh, we've been, you know, thrilled to be part of, you know, kind of the TD family and group. Uh, The transaction closed in July and we're still very early uh, in the journey, but uh, we think there are all sorts of interesting ways that we can, you know, partner with our new colleagues who have real expertise in other parts of the market, uh, and we can bring, you know, our skill set, our automate, our automated model, and hopefully, um, you know, provide real value uh, again in Muni's and also in other channels.
1: Anytime you have an acquisition, right, there's always sort of the challenge of, um, you know, merging two entities and being, uh, you know, a fit from a stylistic standpoint, cultural standpoint. You know, have you experienced any growing pains, you know, assimilating into a very large institution at all?
2: Sure, I, I could take a stab at that. Um, so there's a, a number of dimensions to an integration like this, right? There's there's the technical aspects of it, there's the cultural aspects yeah. of it, uh, et cetera. Um, certainly there are some some challenges when, you, when anytime you're going to merge uh, two independent entities, especially on the technical side, there's just a lot of work that needs to get done there, right? Um, and that will get done over time. But I think what's been the most encouraging to Marty and I has been the uh, unified vision that we share with the uh, with with the folks at TD in terms of where these markets are are going and where our place in that uh, can be. You know, we we've we've built a a sophisticated automated trading uh, business independently of of of, uh, of TD, but I think that there's a, a great amount of of buy in in taking this kind of a model and importing it and backing it with the resources of, of a larger institution uh, we felt great support uh, in that vision
3: And have you noticed just like a difference being under TD like we, we talked about the sell-off at the beginning of this um, you know have you noticed a difference having their support um, like during this environment?
0: yeah I would say I would say certainly we um, you know we've we've uh, we've been active in the meaning market since 2014 so we've lived through, you know, some pretty volatile events March 2020 obviously being the, the, the most significant and we were able to stay you know, very well engaged with the market uh, during you know bouts of, of real volatility or heightened volumes. But I would say that you know, as part of TD again the resources are just much more substantial in terms of being able to um, again extend balance sheet and, and, and be you know, be a little bit more assertive or, or more aggressive. Uh, in transacting uh, and taking advantage of opportunities when there's real, you know, spikes in volumes and being able to continue to provide, you know, meaningful liquidity to our counterparts uh, in, in that type of environment.
1: It's interesting. We, we have that anonymous chat. That we run through BI, and you know, whenever we have these bouts of uh, volatility and inevitably some degree of illiquidity, everybody always blames it on the algos, right? Oh, the machines are shut off. And you know, look, having been on the buy side, I can honestly say that you guys seem to be there making markets in all sorts of market environments, right? Um, and it actually might be quite the opposite that the humans are stepping away, you know? So, I mean, can you speak to that at all, as far as like sort of the different levels there that like might help some of these misconceptions, I guess, that people have?
2: Yeah, no, that, that is a, a great point. Um, and, you know, far be it from us to, uh, you know, call out what, what different different market participants are, are doing during times of, of stress, but we could say for for our part, uh, if anything we are more committed and more engaged during times of, of volatility uh, we've we've certainly never never turned the system off and never mm-hmm. intend to uh, because it's really important for our clients during during those time periods to uh, provide liquidity when you when you talk about algos versus humans i think there's an, an interesting and maybe under discussed dimension here which is so let's go back to march of 2020 the the mini market is selling off by 50 basis points per day, which is unheard of, right? It's a total, total liquidity vacuum. Volumes in the market are exploding. And what we saw were the number of RFQs that come out every day spiked to something like 60,000 a day. Yeah. Right. That's what we were seeing during that time period. which was like up three X or something like that from, from earlier. If you're a human, I have a lot of sympathy for a human trying to provide liquidity to that, that market. I mean, how in the world are you going to get to 60,000 RFQs a day, right? For us, you know, the, the beauty of a fully automated approach is that the marginal cost of us emitting one extra bid price is effectively zero, right? right. And so we were able, even just for sort of mechanical reasons, to stay really engaged in the market as volumes and volatility uh, peaked.
0: Yeah, and and just the one. Uh, I think Matt put it perfectly. The one additional comment I would make is, when things are moving that quickly, we know in our market, you're often resetting levels <clears throat> to, you know, MMD scales, which may come out, you know, a handful of times a day. But when you have that type of activity, that type of secondary market activity and uncertainty and volatility, the ability to dynamically reprice your uh, your inventory and, and reprice, uh, your bids on, on and uh, bid one ends and RFQs really becomes critically important. So if you can do that effectively and you can manage your inventory effectively through that, that repricing process, it allows you to stay more fully engaged uh, with the market, even when things in, in, in that period were, were kind of moving in one way <laughs> for a period of time and really selling off uh, quite aggressively.
1: Well, I'm certainly disappointed to hear you're not using BVAL to reprice several times a day. I mean, that, that's the whole model, Eric. That's all we use. <laughs> oh, there you go. Well, oh, it's a Marty yeah. misspoke, obviously. I uh, <laughs> had to get some clarity there. Um, so, I mean, like, I, I guess this leads me to a separate question, right? So you have these bouts of illiquidity. And um, you know, and MSRB put out this interesting white paper sort of after the whole events of you know early 2020. And, and look, they spoke about this mystery firm who was able to come in and sort of you know fill this void. And, and you know, I don't know who it is, I could take a guess, but I mean, have you if the MSRB were to write another white paper on the last three months, would they be talking about this same firm again in a different capacity? You know, would, would those trends hold true? Yeah, we, we think,
2: think, yeah, go ahead. So, I was going to jump in, Marty, but I think broadly speaking, yes, the the, the trends would would hold true. Okay. Now, this is not as severe as March of twenty twenty, um, but I think that well, it, it depends it, who it, you ask. <laughs> it's longer yeah. than March of twenty twenty. Yeah, there's certainly and, and, some pain and, out there.
0: Yeah, and and I would I would mention, you know, we certainly appreciate the fact that you know we were early to this, but we're certainly not alone, uh, okay. and so it is a. More and more competitive space. In fact, we often we we run a um, uh, a credit training business, and and you know in 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 uh, many ways the credit markets are further along in this journey or this story. And so uh, we are very cognizant of the fact that there's other people out there doing it as well. And I think the 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 participants who can stay really engaged uh, in this type of market are those that have some type of automation. Uh, in the electronic trading process, at least for the again the the the, the retail sizes where uh, you just see this explosion in the number of uh, RFQ requests and, okay. uh, and and requests for inventory.
3: What's hol- what's holding back this space, if if anything, is it you know not having enough data? Like what what would be helpful in terms of growing this space, not only at your firm but just generally?
0: You know, I, it's a really good question. I'll take a shot at this. I'm sure Matt's gonna have a lot to add. I think um, historically spreads, especially for retail sized orders had always been you know, quite wide. I think with automation, and you see this in other asset classes, equities being a good example, certainly options, where you have a, a large retail presence. If you can remove some of the friction involved, in in the execution process. If you can, and, and this was especially true over the last decade or so in a very low interest rate environment, if it's expensive to, to round trip a bond to buy and sell bonds, that makes it more difficult to kind of grow the overall secondary trading ecosystem. So I think what we've seen in other asset classes is the spreads tighten as the market continues to become more efficient it becomes easier for end investors or, or other market participants to come in and, and transact in that market you know, more frequently. So I think that, that certainly is, uh, is one catalyst. And we've seen that uh, again, MSRB puts out really good numbers on this. If you look at effective spreads in the muni market, where you've seen the biggest decline over the last decade or so is in the smaller lot sizes. So as you start getting into you know, 100 bonds and less, Um, you see a real increase. And I I will um, also say that another uh, big driver of growth, at least in terms of secondary trading, has been the SMA space and and what you've seen there. And again, the efficiencies that they've built into their processes to be able to move in and out of positions, whether that's for tax loss trading or duration extension or laddering into into different um, parts of the curve in the portfolio that uh, investment in automation uh, or in tooling has really helped drive, you know, an increase in, in secondary market activity. And we would expect that, that to continue.
2: Agreed. You guys had um, Sylvia Ye from, uh, from Goldman on a few weeks ago. Um, and she made, I think a very insightful comment, which is that in, in some respects the proliferation of market participants like us has helped her business expand, you know, reduce account minimums, et cetera, because there's actual liquidity on the odd lots now. And and, and I think it's also worth pointing out that the same thing is true in reverse, right? Uh, More volume moving into these smaller sizes, SMAs, the growth of SMAs uh, really enables businesses like ours as well. And I think a a phrase that you often hear uh, about this phenomenon in other spaces is liquidity begets liquidity. Right, and you've seen that in many markets over time, and I think this is how it sort of manifests in the in the Muni space.
1: I mean, who are the who are the other big players right now in this space? I mean, you know, like I guess the folks that you guys have on your sort of radar as far as competition, you know, coming up behind you.
0: Yeah, I think certainly, the, you know, the banks have been uh, have have always been, you know, very big, you know, players in this space. I think certainly uh, a number of those have have made real uh, investments in their um, uh, electronic trading business or in their uh, kind of retail uh, or wholesaling business to try to provide more automated liquidity. Uh, So that's that's certainly one camp. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I think in some respects you see, uh, you know, buy side firms uh, being able to provide liquidity uh, in ways maybe that were not practical uh, in the past. And they can do that through various tools that are offered by uh, electronic trading platforms uh, mm-hmm. where they can come in and you know, act as an intermediary. Uh, so that's certainly uh, another area. And then I just think generally, you know, over time, you would expect to see other you know, proprietary type firms, uh, uh, electronic trading firms that would drift into munis. Certainly that's been the case in something like IG Credit. Or high yield credit where uh, those players have been have been quite active.
1: Do you think like so an area that I find very interesting and, and I'm sure we'll cover it on a later podcast is, is basket trading or portfolio trading. And it really hasn't taken a foothold in Munis, right? But it's a it's a natural offshoot from what you guys are doing. It's just sort of a different way to sort of you know cut that basket. Do you see that gaining hold from your seat in a meaningful way over the next, let's say, 12 to 18 months? Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see. Certainly, it's a
2: big part of the, the credit markets, um, mm-hmm. and there's a natural interplay there with yeah. ETF trading as well. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of ways, you could take, t- take the portfolios and cross them into the ETFs. Yeah. Um, in, in munis, we have not seen a ton of it yet. We've seen a little bit. Since some some initial forays, um, I think we would not be surprised to see it uh, gain some some traction, but we have not seen a ton of it yet.
3: Um, I'm gonna ask: Is that something that you guys could offer? Is is that a dumb question? Oh or...
2: no, 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 no dumb questions and no question. We in fact, it's a. It's a really natural extension of of what we do, right? I mean, what's from from our perspective, what really is the difference between the 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 forty thousand RFQs that we see already throughout the day and you know a thousand of them packaged up in one bundle? That's sort so of where I was there going is really no, yeah, yeah, there is really no difference for us. Um, so we would be more than happy to provide liquidity to baskets if things if that does uh, prove to add value to our counterparties. We just haven't seen too much
1: of it yet. Yeah. What do oh. you think? Okay, I was going to say, so, I mean, like taking that one step forward, right. Wouldn't that improve liquidity in a way? Because wouldn't that draw more, like, let's say like non-natural muni buyers in if they could just say, Hey, I want to get put up on, you know, 50 million immunities," you know, just build me a portfolio right from scratch. Right. And you guys can just pick it out from inventory that you guys have, or, you know, I would just think that would like actually improve liquidity. Well, did you, know, you run into an And and Marty, I to jump in here. You do
2: run into an interesting uh, dynamic in munis that is different from credit, which is related to the fact that you can't short munis, right? And so that, if you think through it, that kind of uh, limits what you can do on one side of a basket, right? So if somebody comes to us and says, "We would like to sell you X million dollars in munis," we can easily provide a price to that entire basket. Conversely, if somebody comes in and says, can you please sell us X million dollars? Well, we of course can pick those out of our inventory and we do have a substantial inventory, yeah. um, but we're limited because we can't go short, right? And so there's a little bit of a constraint on, on that side of things, but certainly on, on the other side, on the, on, the, on the selling side, I think your, your, your story makes sense. Yeah.
3: Are there any other um, parts of the market? I know that y'all focus more on um, investment grade munis. Um, you know, would you look at high yield? Like where are you kind of seeing growth opportunities?
0: Yeah, I think we we uh, we uh, are again really excited about being a part of TD and what those opportunities look like now that we're uh, uh, part of a you know a bigger bank that does have a presence in uh, public finance or in you know more institutional size trading or or certainly could do things in the uh, in the more high yield part of the market. Um, you know, we think that uh, again, as Matt kind of hit on earlier what we built can really be applied or adopted uh, to other products and and uh, and asset classes or to other areas of the of the municipal market so it's certainly something as we get more fully integrated uh, into into TD we would hope to you know take advantage of
2: I think I think the way that we sort of view the universe of, of uh, financial markets is that they exist on a continuum of liquidity right and on on one far extreme, you've got on-the-run treasuries or whatever the most liquid asset class in the world is, right? And on the other side, you've got, I don't know, probably Munis or whatever is even even less liquid than Munis. And somewhere in there, latency starts to matter, right? And and that's not going to be our sweet spot. We know enough from having worked at a low latency trading firm for 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 many years. um, You know, we're we're fast, but we're not that fast. The set of of trade-offs that you would make technically speaking are just very different in that space. But that still leaves a giant swath of of financial markets that are not currently and likely will never be for sort of fundamental reasons, truly latency sensitive. And we think that our approach should be able to hopefully scale to to many of them.
1: Yeah, I mean, we started off the conversation, you guys were talking about how you provide bids for everything, right? But the market has changed dramatically um, over the last several years. And one of the things we hit on each year is sort of looking at like coupon composition of the market. So, you know, when we had the initial disruption in March of 2020, we were predominantly a premium coupon market. If you fast forward two years later, we have a lot of twos and threes, um, you know, making up a larger share. Has that changed anything as far as your approach to the markets, Um, you know, other than sort of where the bids are? You know, obviously, because of where (laughs) rates have gone. So look, I think Marty
2: used a good phrase earlier in this conversation, which is that uh, you know we're not uh, credit traders, we're systematic traders, and uh, at the end of the day, we are trying to mostly reflect where supply and demand are in the market, right? So as rates uh, you know skyrocket, obviously the natural point where supply meets demand for different coupons will change dramatically, and we're certainly seeing that. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, our approach, our system, our, our modeling, what have you, its goal is to reflect where current trading conditions are. Um, and so from our perspective, you know, we don't have to change that much other than reflecting current market conditions. But certainly those conditions have changed where where twos and threes trade relative to five. I mean, is totally different than where it was a year ago.
1: Well, I, I guess it's sort of like my point, right? So there was probably a couple of weeks where I don't think anyone could accurately say where those bonds should be trading because we were dealing with you know, consistent rise in rates and there didn't seem to be a firm bid side um, as far as dealer desks for those you know, discount coupon structures. Um, and it's like the proverbial falling knife, right? So it's like, how do you, how do you establish where the bid side would be and this is a completely like you know just naive question. You know, how do one. you guys find a place where you're like, all right, we think this is where the market is, even though there's probably no one else around us willing to <laughs> sort of corroborate that feeling. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, it, it, go ahead, Matt. It's a great question, right? And some of it gets into the quote unquote secret sauce, but but really, at, at the end of the day, uh, we are trying to manage our flows right and, and and what we've always almost surprisingly been able to find is that even in the depths of, of the, the worst market conditions in March of 2020 um, and, and other times that we've always been able to find the other side of the trade.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: right. Now it might be at very adjusted levels. It well, might not yeah. be where you where you want the prices to be, right. but we've always been able to find, buyers. and as long as we can find buyers, well then we know we know where we can buy yeah. right um, And so at the end of the day obviously there's a lot of stats and math and machine learning blah 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 that goes, yeah. that goes into it but at the end of the day it's where can you buy where can you sell
0: Yeah and <laughs> I, I think Matt's exactly right and, and Eric if we were if, if this is where you know we were seeing ourselves in a situation where we were unable, to turn over that part of the portfolio, or we 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 cannot find buyers, then of course we would have to, you know, kind of reset, you know, pricing. And I think it does also speak to how critically important it is to be able to, uh, you know, dynamically update pricing of your inventory, right? Because you're going to end up needing to move that. And so, a can you can you can you update pricing uh, quickly, and then. You know, B. Can you can you access a broad network of of clients or or market participants on the other side? So the distribution element there really becomes, you know, very important. You know, not only have you adjusted the levels, but people can find them and they know that they're that they're out there and they can interact with them quickly.
1: What's like average age of portfolio of portfolio line items? I mean, do you guys have like a like a certain aged limit where you're like, all right, we're doing it wrong, Hmm. Um, we got to tweak things? I mean, what's that number for you guys? Yeah, that that that's a good question,
2: and a lot of firms out there do have strict limits. Um, historically, we have not had a strict limit on anything. We 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 look more at aggregate statistics. Yeah. Um, you know, when you have as many line items in inventory as we do, you're always going to have just for no reason other than probability theory some outliers that stick around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but on average, you know, we're holding we're holding bonds for a couple weeks, something like that.
0: Okay. And it, and it could vary given the market conditions. I would say, you know, we always are looking to turn the portfolio over every month or so. And then that can, you know, that can, that can adjust or change given the, the, the market conditions.
1: You and every other dealer desk, right? <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
3: I'm curious, just as like a market maker who is kind of, it seems like you're saying that you're kind of agnostic on which way the market ends up going, but what color are you picking up on about um, you know, who is buying and who is selling? Obviously, mutual funds seem to be selling, but um, what color can you provide on just kind of the market right now?
2: Well, it's, it's interesting. They are net selling, but they're not only selling, right? And that's what we see in a, in a lot of cases. So yes, there's been net outflows for sure from the market, but that doesn't mean that everybody is trying to exit. In fact, I think there are a lot of people that see real value in muni's at these levels and far it's be it for me to say, but I would say that they're right there. I think that they're probably right. Um, and so, you know, what we've seen is yes, a lot of selling, but also a lot of buying from really all all types of counterparties. And the net result from our perspective is a cheapening of levels, just reflecting supply and demand, but a massive increase in volumes, right? And sort of the value of the liquidity that that we can provide, which has been all in all a, a
1: positive thing for us. Has this, has this sell-off, come at almost like the wrong time of the year because like to me like I, I think that there's a lot of things going on in the marketplace that are like really clouding issues right so amanda wrote something this morning and was talking about the amount of um bid wanted items right it was like but ten thousand. amanda was that right i think it was yep. something around that right. sorry yeah. but if, i mean like but look I, I just got my tax bill and like it, It makes my heart race even thinking about that phone call I got from my accountant. But I mean, I'm sure a lot of people got similar calls. So I mean, like, is a lot of the selling right now coming from people just throwing munis out because they are proverbially the first things to get sold and people don't want to take equity losses, you know, to pay tax bills? Is that sort of like clouding some of the issues right
0: now? It's a good question. And I don't, I don't know that either Either of us have any grand insights. I will say it's been interesting that we've seen these kind of elevated auction counts really dating back to December, which you, which you would have expected to some degree, because I yeah. think there was certainly uh, a fair amount of tax loss uh, trading at the end of the year, sure. given that you did get a move in rates going into 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 year end, um, but then that has really persisted, you know, throughout the last you know three to four months, and and I think in many ways it's it's been um, you know it's been Munis following you know the the, the rate action and some of the other macro uh, events in the marketplace, and um, you know what we've seen is is when you have gotten little pockets during the last you know few months where. Things have stabilized. Uh, you know, Treasury rates have stabilized, or even get a, a bit of a reversion. Um, you've seen muni's stabilize and start to catch up a bit. But as soon as you start to see that, uh, you know, that, that sell-off pick up again, muni's tend to lag. Uh, you know, the performance elsewhere, and you see these these significant outflows that we've been seeing, which. To some extent, are certainly driving a big part of the uh, uh, the, the the spike in in uh, in auction counts. Um, so we, again, we always say we wish we had you know a greater uh, kind of insight and expertise on, on you know exactly what's happening uh, with the end investor you know or different types of investors. Uh, but ultimately, we're trying to make sure we can respond to that you know to that heightened activity you know no matter what the catalyst does.
3: And maybe just shifting gears a little bit to talk more about kind of industry trends. Um, I'm interested in just recruitment and what talent looks like in automated trading. You know, is it engineers? Is it trade? It sounds like your team is a mix of both. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the recruitment pipeline and how that is.
2: Uh, Definitely. It's a thing we think about a whole lot. And it is, I think it's safe to say, quite different than uh, for us than what it looks like on some traditional uh, trading desks. So I think I mentioned earlier, but we, we tend to think of ourselves as much as a software firm, like a Google or a Microsoft or an Amazon, as we are a trading firm, right? And in fact, we we hire people from from places like that. Um, and so look, we, we do have a, a fantastic team of traders, risk managers, um, you know, distribution experts, etc. cetera. Um, but we also have a team of world-class quantitative researchers uh, and a team of world-class software developers. Um, You know, those quantitative researchers come from other banks, but they also come from, you know, other other proprietary trading firms, hedge funds, et cetera. And the software developers sometimes come from other banks, but they can also come from, like I said, Amazon, Apple, et cetera. Um, And so it's certainly a, a different set of profiles than what you have. In, in typical trading businesses, and it it poses interesting challenges that we we certainly
0: think about a lot. Yeah, and it's it's been much, uh, and it's been much more competitive, I would say. Uh, and and there's yeah. a there's kind of a race for talent uh, on the electronic trading side. Um, and I think you know it's been interesting. If you go back, you know, just a few years ago, I think if you were you know if you were interested in in electronic trading, algorithmic trading of any sort, you tended to gravitate to uh, the lower latency markets. Uh, So things like futures and treasuries and equities. I think what we're seeing now, uh, and and this is especially acute in in, uh, corporate bonds, is you're seeing, again, a tremendous interest in automation. And I think many people who maybe have operated in some of these other asset classes also very interested in getting into uh, the credit markets uh, because they are automating. And there's really interesting things going on that we talked about earlier with Know, ETF trading, portfolio trading, all of that really lends itself, you know, to a more kind of algorithmic uh, type approach. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, banks and other trading firms are really investing heavily uh, in, in that type of talent uh, to try to build up those and scale up those uh, businesses.
1: So last question, um, and I just want to sort of like ask you guys to break out your crystal ball 18 months from now. What's the biggest technological advancement in the municipal industry? And I know those are two terms that don't really go together all the time, but if you could sort of uh, look ahead, what do you what do you think is going to be the biggest change for our industry?
0: That's a great question. That, you take that one, Matt, yeah. uh, to start while I think about my answer. Uh,
2: yeah, no, that's. I think there you can answer that question along a number of of dimensions. There's what firms like us will do. I think there's also what uh, what what venues will do and and marty perhaps you could speak uh, more more about that um but look i mean i think over the next 18 months you know we're going to keep pushing the envelope as as hard as we can i think you're going to see more players uh like like us continue to to enter the space i think you're going to see um some of the trends that we've seen over the last i mean years really uh continue continuing interest in, in smas uh, lowering account minimums. Those don't sound like technological trends, but they actually are because you can't support accounts like that without real automation, right? Yeah. And, and it's really, you know, there's been this journey in in many asset classes over, over years from kind of old school, manual trader driven to super, super sophisticated. And you get this liquidity begets liquidity story, right? That helps drive that. And I think that we're just in like the second inning of that in munis. Uh, and so I think you're just going to see a lot of the same trends that we've seen really strengthen and gain steam.
1: It's hard to think that SMA account minimums could get any lower and still you know, still be meaningful to actually build a diverse portfolio. I mean, I, I've seen some at like $100,000 and it's like, I it just, I feel like there has to be some sort of breaking point where you're just better off in an ETF or something or some sort of fund product you know, rather than buying individual bonds because there is that sort of bid-ask premium. Uh, especially when people treat it like a checking account. But
0: yeah, and I think I think there you'll you you will absolutely continue to see spreads tighten yeah. uh, that 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 we've been on that journey for quite a while now. Um, and, and I would just echo Matt's comments. I think it's a continuation or an acceleration of the things that we've seen. Certainly, uh, ETF trading uh, is is something we've already talked about, but that is I think going to become more pronounced. Um, we've seen significant fund flows into etFs over the last few years I know you've talked about that Eric on prior, prior podcast yeah. um, but that being more kind of tied into into at least the, the you know the, the kind of the secondary trading piece I think is um, is, uh, is is still in the early stages
2: um,
3: oh sorry go ahead
1: no I, I mean I was just going to
2: add a, a minor a minor point but you know you, you think about the mini market and how in in some ways, how far it's come in terms of, of electronic trading, and you know, a lot of the trade count still happens or, or happens electronically nowadays. We do you know thousands, many thousands of trades a day, but when you look on a notional perspective, I think that the numbers are something like 20% of volume even hits an electronic venue, right? Now, look that that number is it going to go to 100%? No, but we we personally don't see any world in which that doesn't move meaningfully upwards over the next, you know, is it going to be 18 months? Is it going to be 10 years? Who, who knows? Um, but I think you're, you're going to see more and more volume move, uh, move electronic. It's already happening. I think it's going to keep, keep continuing.
3: Um, okay. So I'm really hesitant to end on a um, dark note because this has been very <laughs> growth oriented. Is there anything that keeps you up at night? Um, at least, you know, for, for your line of business, or is this something that is kind of like a runaway train where there's Kind of no slowing it down.
0: I'll take a first shot at this. I think Matt probably has a similar answer. Um, you know, running a business like this does take a, a huge investment in technology. Uh, it also really requires you to be uh, very thoughtful about you know what's happening in the marketplace. That could be you know new venues coming online, new data sources. Uh, again, there's more entrants that are coming in that are taking advantage of, you know, electronic trading tools and capabilities in the market. So really for us, it's it's are we are we reinvesting back into the business? Are we you know, kind of scaling the team in the right way? Um, and, you know, is there anything we're missing in terms of, of new innovations, uh, either on the data or the trading or the or the connectivity front that we should really be uh we should really be thinking hard about. So, you know, I, yeah. I say we're, we're, we're uh we we have we we always have angst, uh, the the two of us that uh that there's something we're missing that uh um that uh we're gonna get caught flat footed on.
2: Yeah. M- markets tend towards efficiency. Markets tend towards electronification. That train has left the station and it's going whether or not we're with it. We want to make sure that we are on the forefront of that at all times.
1: I mean, this has been awesome. Uh, Marty Mannion, Matt Schrager. Uh, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk with us today. I, I think the takeaway message is you guys are uh, sort of pioneers in this space and it's only going to get bigger. So glad that we had the conversation. Hopefully some of our listeners uh, got a little bit of knowledge dropped on them. So they don't blame you guys for shutting off the machine should we have another time <laughs> of back up again. Or never shutting them off. Don't worry. There you go. Never shutting off the machines. So thank you guys again. And we'll catch you on the next episode of Masters of the Universe. Thank you.